Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. During the 100 Days Offensive, Canada was helping to lead the charge to push the Germans back as the war was drawing to a close. The Germans had withdrawn to the Hindenburg Line, and the Canadian Front would include the sector of Bourlon Wood and Canal du Nord. The Canadians had seen victory in recent battles, but it would be a month before they would advance any further on the line. The canal was a difficult spot for the Canadians to crack through on. It was dry, but the banks were several meters high, and the Canadians did not know what was on the other side in regards to the Germans. The Germans had flooded the area around the canal, with only a two-kilometer section still being dry. This would result in the Canadians being squeezed into a small front, and once through, they would have to fan out in order to take the rest of the section they had been assigned. Another issue with this was that while tanks and infantry could cross over the dry canal, artillery could not. In order to accomplish the movement of artillery, General Arthur Curry would put the Canadian engineers in charge of installing portable bridges. But this was no simple task of just building a bridge. It would have to involve building bridges while being shot at and shelled. But it was vital to get the artillery across. In the week leading up to the battle, two Canadian divisions were sent south to cross the canal at a weaker point while the engineers continued to build bridges. During the same time, heavy reconnaissance operations were conducted. Observational balloons, four patrols, and occasional raids of enemy trenches gave the Canadians a small idea of what they would be facing. But much was left to the unknown and the success of a surprise attack. They were able to identify 113 guns before the operation began, which the artillery would eliminate. For Curry, there was a great deal of worry that the plan would fail, and he would state later, The assembly of the attacking troops in an extremely congested area known by the enemy to be the only one available was very dangerous, especially in view of the alertness of the enemy. A concentrated bombardment of this area prior to zero, particularly if gas was employed, was a dreaded possibility which would seriously affect the whole operation and, and possibly cause its total failure. General Bing warned Curry that there was a good chance that it would not work, but the British wanted to push back the Germans as much as possible to crack through the Hindenburg Line, and his plan would see two divisions, 40,000 men total, moving in the attack. Bing would say to Curry in a meeting described by Shane Schreiber, Do you realize that you are attempting one of the most difficult operations of the war? If anybody can do it, the Canadians can do it. But if you fail, it means home for you. The Machine Gun Corps would prepare for the attack by establishing well-filled dumps of ammunition as close to the line as they could. Half a million rounds were placed in one spot 100 yards to the north of the crossing road, while another contained 300,000 rounds at the Cambria Road, near the canal. At 5.20am on September 27, 1918, the creeping barrage of the Canadian artillery would begin, and four Canadian battalions went forward across the canal with the aid of ladders to climb the 1.5-metre wall on the opposite bank, reaching the other side successfully. The scene was described by A.M.J. Hyatt. The infantry bunched into the crowded assembly area and, oppressed by the fear of routine enemy barrage on their dangerously dense numbers, waited apprehensively for zero hour. Rain began to fall, and the cold ground became slippery, adding to the difficulty of the coming assault. The assault of the sky remained ominous. 
Suddenly, at 5.20 a.m., the stillness and tension were shattered by the sickening crash of the creeping barrage, and the infantry began moving forward. Canon Frederick Scott, a chaplain, described the artillery barrage. At 5.20, the savage roar burst forth. It was a stupendous attack. Field guns, heavy guns, and siege batteries sent forth their fury, and machine guns poured millions of rounds into the country beyond the canal. At 6.05 a.m., the first German prisoner had arrived at the rear of the battalions, signaling success up ahead. At this point, the other battalions would begin to leapfrog over their positions, moving forward and fanning out over 9 kilometers along the front. The surprise aspect under the cover of darkness was a major reason for the success of the Canadians during the initial stages of the battle. By 10 a.m., the first objectives were captured. Major J.A.G. White would write later, When the attack was launched, the brigade was already tired of holding the line for several days. Harassed by enemy fire, gas, and aeroplane bombing, notwithstanding these difficulties, the spirit of all ranks ensured success. But for this spirit, the success which ultimately attended our efforts would have been impossible. Captain W.H. Hubbard, a pilot, would write that he could be recounted of German gunners being chased away from their guns and then prevented from working them until captured by the tanks. Now that the opposite bank was secure, the engineers would begin installing the portable bridges they had built, and the first guns moved across at 8.40 a.m., with some being pushed back under fire. By the middle of the afternoon, several artillery were across, and the push to move the rest through was going quickly. In all, 785 guns were moved on the first day of the battle, using eight bridges. There was one gun per 14 meters of front, releasing a storm of steel and smoke for the Canadians to advance on. By the end of the day, the Canadian Corps had secured the canal, Bourlon Wood, and the village of Bourlon. The Canadians would dig in for the night, because things were not done yet. The Canadians would attempt to cross the Marcong Line, but were not able to until September 29th, and by September 30th, the 3rd and 4th Divisions of the Canadian Corps had reached Cambria. The city was circled, and Curie started to plan how the city would be taken. The Canadians were not used to urban warfare, and Kerry would have to plan how the city would be taken without going door to door, and likely seeing huge Canadian casualties. For the next week, the Canadians waited for their orders as Kerry planned out the attack. The Germans would force their hand, though, as they pulled out of the city on October 8th, leaving behind a city burning that had been riddled with tripwires and booby traps. The Canadians would advance to the city slowly, following the Germans, who had retreated to the east. By the end of the battle, which had run from September 27th to October 2nd, 13,600 Canadians had been killed, wounded, or were missing. It was a huge victory for the Canadians and the Allies, but it came at a terrible cost. The Canadians were able to take 7,000 prisoners and 205 guns, having faced 13 German divisions and many machine gun units. The 75th Battalion, made up of many men from the Brant County, would go in with 450 men on September 27th, with 87 not being killed or injured by October 4th. One person who had died during the battle was Michael Clark Jr. He was the son of Michael Clark, the MP for Red Deer since 1908, who would continue to serve in the House of Commons until 1921. George Ross Thompson was born in Kenora and went overseas in 1914, spending four years on the front lines until he was killed on September 28th. 
His grave would be unidentified for 80 years until 1998 when extensive research was done and his grave was finally identified. In November of that year, a memorial service was held with family and members of the Princess Patricia's Light Infantry present. Francis George Littleworth had arrived in France in April 1917 and was severely injured in a gas attack in November of that year. On September 28th, he would suffer a fatal wound, and the incident is described as such. He was in charge of a section, and whilst taking part in the attack of Bourlon Wood on the 28th of September 1918, he was severely wounded in the head and stomach by enemy machine gun fire. After receiving first aid, he was taken to the number 33 casualty clearing station, where he died the same day. Gordon McTaggart had suffered a gas attack on September 9th, but returned to duty and was part of the attacking force on September 27th at the canal. Already wounded, he went to take shelter in a shell hole and was wounded again, this time fatally. His battery commander would say of him, He was, without a doubt, one of the best all-round soldiers in my battery. Lieutenant James Apperson would be awarded the Military Cross thanks to his actions on September 27th when he made a daring reconnaissance and brought back information that was highly valuable. Later in the battle, when the assaulting battalion was being hit hard, he led his platoon forward to provide support. Lieutenant James Davis was also awarded the Military Cross for reconnaissance work, which he accomplished on September 27th under heavy fire. He then took a column of wagons forward and established an artillery filling point 1,000 yards to the east of the canal, which was being shelled heavily. He was then able to keep up the supply of ammunition during the advance. Several Canadians would actually receive the Victoria Cross for the battle. Lieutenant George Fraser Keir would lead his company in an attack on September 27th, and after nearing the Cambria Road, found his advance held up by a strong point. Lieutenant Keir then advanced far in front of his company, rushed the point by himself, and captured four machine guns and 31 prisoners. He would survive the war, but tragically died in 1929 in his home from carbon monoxide poisoning. Lieutenant Graham Thomas Lyle led his company on September 27th when they were halted by an enemy's strong point. Lyle then executed a flank movement with his platoon, capturing prisoners and guns in the process. Later in the day, when his platoon was held up by machine guns, he led his few remaining men forward, rushing the position of the guns single-handedly, killing an officer and taking the machine guns and numerous prisoners. He would capture more prisoners and guns the next day on October 1st. In those two days, he captured three officers, 182 soldiers, 26 guns, and one field gun. Lyle would survive the war. Lieutenant Samuel Lewis Honey would see his company commander and all other officers become casualties on September 27th, resulting in Lieutenant Honey taking command and reorganizing the unit under heavy fire. He would continue the advancement of the company, gaining their objective. He would see that his company was suffering casualties from machine gun fire, and he would rush that position by himself, capturing the guns and 10 prisoners. He then led his company to capture another post and three more guns. On September 29th, he led his company against a strong enemy position with skill and daring and continued to serve with valor and self-sacrifice due to being severely wounded. He would die from his wounds soon after. Lieutenant Milton Fowler Gregg would find the advance of his company held up by fire from both flanks and thick wire on September 28th. He would crawl forward alone and explore the wire until he found a small gap where he led his men through and then forced an entry into the German trench. The Germans counterattacked, and Lieutenant Gregg was wounded, 
but since his men lacked grenades, he would run back and gather more grenades despite being fired upon. He would be wounded a second time, and then reorganized his men and personally killed or wounded 11 German soldiers and took 25 prisoners along with 12 machine guns. He remained with his men despite his wounds, and on September 30th led another attack until he was too wounded to continue. He would survive the war. Captain James McGregor received the medal for leaving his company under intense fire and despite being wounded. He was able to locate and put out several machine guns, killed four Germans, and took eight prisoners. He then reorganized the command under fire and continued to his advance despite strong resistance from the Germans. McGregor would survive the war and again served in the Second World War, this time as a lieutenant colonel. Sergeant William Merrifield would lead his men in an attack on October 1st under heavy fire from two machine gun emplacements. He attacked both by himself, dashing from one shell hole to the other, killing the Germans in the first post, being wounded, then attacking the second post and using a bomb to kill the Germans there. He refused to be evacuated and stayed with his platoon and was severely wounded again, but he would survive the war. I hope you enjoyed that look at the Battle of Canal du Nord, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all of my podcast episodes. Just go to www.canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast if you like, just by going to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Information comes from vimyfoundations.ca, the Canadian War Museum, Red Deer Express, No Stone Left Alone, Wikipedia, Maclean's, canadianmilitaryhistory.ca, South Peace Archives, Canadian MIGs, Letters from the Front, and the History of the County of Brant. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.